This is Everyday Light, a perfectly imperfect reading of the One Year Daily Bible. I'm Molly, a fellow pilgrim on the road to the kingdom, and it is a joy to have you traveling this journey with me, with the Word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Welcome. This is the One Year Bible reading for August the 5th. We actually finished the book of Second Chronicles yesterday. I should have had a party for us. I didn't. Um, so we're starting today in the book of Ezra. Now, I've learned in Dr. Chuck Missler's book, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, which I recommend. It sounds dry. It's actually super interesting. Um, Ezra was probably the author of First and Second Chronicles, in addition to the book that bears his name. In fact, the last couple verses of Second Chronicles and the first few verses of Ezra are identical. Those are the first verses we're going to read today, and you're going to think I, I just am repeating from yesterday. Ezra was a very prominent person in Jewish history, and he is credited with, among other things, establishing the canon, the official version of the Old Testament. So the book of Ezra is going to cover the return from captivity to rebuild the temple up to the degree of Artaxerxes, the event covered at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to start the book of Ezra today, and necessarily we have some more genealogy in the, in the accounting of who returned from captivity, because when the kingdom of Judah was taken into exile, not everyone returned. Obviously, some were lost, but many actually decided to stay in Babylon and not return to Jerusalem. So it was very important to account for who returned, because as we'll see at the end of our Old Testament reading today, some who are not able to establish their genealogy were not able to inherit land and, and not able to serve. So that's where we're starting today, Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy by stirring the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation into writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in the land of Judah. All of you who are his, his, his people may return to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem, and may your God be with you. Those who live in any place where Jewish survivors are found should contribute toward their expenses by supplying them with silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a freewill offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to return to, uh, to Jer Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord and all their neighbors assisted by giving them vessels of silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock. They gave them many choice gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. King Cyrus himself brought out the valuable items which King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his own gods. Cyrus directed Mithredath, the treasurer of Persia, to count these items and present them to Sheshbazar, the leader of the exiles, returning to Judah. These were the items Cyrus donated, gold trays, 30, silver trays, 1,000, silver censers, 29, gold bowls, 30, silver bowls, 410, and other items, 1,000. 
In all, 5,400 gold and silver items were turned over to Sheshbazar to take back to Jerusalem when the exiles returned there from Babylon. Here is the list of the Jewish exiles of the provinces who returned from their captivity to Jerusalem and to the other towns of Judah. They had been deported to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Their leaders were Zerubbabel, Jeshua, ne uh, Nehemiah, Sarai, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvai, Rahum, and Benaiah. This is the number of the men of Israel who returned from exile. The family of Parosh, 2,172. The family of Shephatiah, 372. The family of Era, 775. The family of Peath Moab, the descendants of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The fam family of Elam, 1,254. The family of Zatu, 945, the family of Zakai, 760, the family of Bani, 642, the family of Bibai, 623, the family of Asgad, 1222, the family of Adonikam, 666, the family of Bigvai, 2056, the family of Adon, 554, the family of Atter, the descendants of Hezekiah, 98, the family of Bezai, 323, the family of Jorah, 112, the family of Hashum, 223, the family of Gibar, 95, the people of Bethlehem, 123, the people of Natopha, 56, the people of Anathoth, 128, the people of Beth uh, Asmaveth, 42, the peoples of Kiriath-Jerim, Kephira, and Beroth, 743. The people of Ramah and Geba, 621. The people of Michmash, 122. The peoples of Beth Bethel and Ai, 223. The citizens of Nebo, 52. The citizens of Magbish, 156. The citizens of Elam, 1254. The citizens of Harim, 320, the citizens of Lod, Hadid, On Ono, 723, uh, sorry, 725, the citizens of Jericho, 345, the citizens of Sana'a, 3630. And these are the priests who return from exile. The family of Jediah, through the line of Jeshua, 973, the family of Immer, 1,052, the family of Pashur, 1,247, the family of Harim, 1,017. These are the Levites who returned from exile. The families of Jeshua and Kadmiel, descendants of Hodaviah, 74. The singers of the family of Asaph, 128. The gatekeepers from the families of Shalom, Ater, Talman, Akub, Hattaita, uh, and Shobai, 139. The descendants of the following temple servants returned from exile, Zia, Hashufa, Tabeoth, Keros, Siaiha, Padon, Labana, Hagabath, Akub, Hagab, Shalmai, Hanan, Gidel, Gahar, Reiah, Rezin, 
Nakoda, Gazam, Uza, Passia, Bezai, Asna, Mayunam, Nefushim, Bakbuk, Hakufa, Harher, Basluth, Mehida, Harsha, Barkos, Sisera, Temma, Neziah, and Hatifa. The descendants of these servants of the king of Solomon returned from exile. Sotai, Sophereth, Peruda, Jela, Darkon, Giddel, Shephatiah, Hatil, Pokereth, Hazabam, and Ami. In all, the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants numbered 392. Another group returned from Jerusalem at this time from the towns of Telma, Telharsha, Kerub, Adan, and Immer. However, they could not prove that they or their families were descendants of Israel. The group consisted of the families of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nakoda, a total of 652 people. Three families of priests, Hobaiah, Hakos, Barzillai, also returned to Jerusalem. This Barzillai had married was a descendant of Barzillai of Gilead, and he had taken her family name. But they had lost their genealogical records, so they were not allowed to serve as priests. The governor would not even let them eat the priest's share of food from the sacrifices until there was a priest who could consult the Lord about the matter by means of sacred lots. So they took this very seriously in returning. So a total of uh, 42,360 people returned to Judah. In addition to 7,337 servants and 200 singers, both men and women, they took with them 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. So again, this is just a fraction. That's what we call it the remnant. God will always save a remnant. Um, but this is just a fraction of the people who went to Babylon. And it's been 70 years. So many people had just established themselves in Babylon, had businesses, and were quite successful there. So they were not interested in returning. When they arrived at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the family leaders gave generously toward the rebuilding of God's temple on its original site. And each leader gave as much as he could. The total of their gifts came to 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 100 robes for the priests. So the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, and some of the common people settled in villages near Jerusalem. The rest of the people returned to the other towns of Judah from which they had come. And yesterday we started 1 Corinthians, and we're picking up in chapter 1, verse 18 today. I didn't give you the background of that. So that is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And this area of Corinth was like the Las Vegas of the time. Um, so it was really uh, a troubled area. And the church has fallen into some issues, some factions, and so forth. And so this is really a corrective letter of Paul to the church. I, Paul, know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy human wisdom and discard their most brilliant ideas. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? 
God has made them all look foolish and has shown their wisdom to be useless nonsense. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never find him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save all who believe. God's way seems foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven to prove it is true. And it is foolish to the Greeks because they believe only what agrees with their own wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. But the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the mighty power of God and the wonderful wisdom of God. This, quote, foolish plan of God is far wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is far stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God deliberately chose things of the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important, so that no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God alone made it possible for you to be in Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Christ to be wisdom itself. He is the one who made us acceptable to God. He made us pure and holy, and he gave himself to purchase our freedom. As the scriptures say, the person who wishes to boast should boast only of what the Lord has done. Dear brothers and sisters, when I first came to you, I didn't use lofty words and brilliant ideas to tell you God's message, for I decided to concentrate only on Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. I did not use wise and persuasive speeches, but the Holy Spirit was powerful among you. I did this so that you might trust the power of God rather than human wisdom. We're finishing Psalm 27 today, starting in verse 7. Listen to my pleading, O Lord, be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Do not hide yourself from me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation. Even if my mother and father abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the path of honesty, for my enemies are waiting for me to fall. Let me fall into their hands, for they accuse me of things I've never done and breathe out violence against me. I'm confident that I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Proverbs 20, 22 to 23. Don't say, I will get even for, for this wrong. Wait for the Lord to handle the matter. The Lord despises double standards. He is not pleased by dishonest scales. And to end today, we are in The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg in the chapter called Appropriate Smallness, The Practice of Servanthood. And uh, we talked yesterday about the ministry of the mundane, looking for those opportunities to serve, not in the big things, but in the little things. 
and this part is called the ministry of being interrupted. Another form of service might be called the ministry of availability. In the Russian church, certain people called pustiniki would devote themselves to a life of prayer. They would withdraw to the desert, pustinia, and live in solitude, but not in isolation. The Russian word for solitude means, quote, being with everybody. Isn't that funny? By custom, the latch was always off the door as a sign of availability, according to Tilden Edwards. The Pustinik's priority at any time was his neighbor's need, which might stretch beyond prayer and counsel to physical labor, as at harvest time. Sometimes in our work, we must be interruptible for tasks that are not on our agenda. Sometimes we must live with, quote, the latch off the door. Sometimes we need to be available to talk or pray with troubled people, people whom we will not be able to, quote, cure, and who cannot contribute to our career success. So that I can practice this, I occasionally will set aside a day off at home to be a day of secret service, when I am simply available to my family and have no agenda of projects or tasks of my own. The idea is that when my only task is to be available, it is impossible to be interrupted. The goal of the day is simply to serve, but it is always humbling to see how quickly my need to create my own personal agenda arises. Sometimes service involves delays and interruptions that come from following the rules everybody else follows. Muhammad Ali, not known for his humility, right? He calls himself the greatest. Once allegedly refused to fasten his seatbelt on an airplane. After repeated requests by the flight attendant to buckle up, Ali finally said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the attendant is said to have replied, Superman don't need no airplane. We are all of us would be supermen. If we can't fly on our own, we would at least like to think we're special enough to be exempt from the rules. Mm, that cuts close to home. Um, sometimes service means doing routine tasks, even if we could have somebody else do them. There's a story about Abraham Lincoln, possibly apocryphal, but certainly in character, that a cabinet member once saw him shining his shoes. The cabinet member expressed surprise that the president of the United States was blacking his own boots. Lincoln responded, Whose boots do you expect me to black? Service does not mean we do nothing but mundane tasks, nor does it mean our day should be filled with nothing but interruptions. Knowing when to be available for the ministry of the mundane takes discernment and wisdom. Generally speaking, the higher our grandiosity quotient, the greater our need for this ministry. The ministry of the mundane will, it is hoped, be helpful to others, but it is also a ministry to us, ourselves, a grandiosity buster. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote of this as the ministry of, quote, active helpfulness. This means initially simple assistance in trifling external matters. We can find a multitude of such things wherever people live together. Nobody is too good to perform the lowliest task. People who worry about the loss of time that such petty outward acts of helpfulness might entail are probably taking themselves and their career Careers too seriously. Considering the fact that Bonhoeffer himself was a brilliant theologian, author, teacher, pastor, seminary president, and a leader of the anti-Nazi underground movement who would ultimately be martyred for his witness, this is a sobering thought. <laughs> so I hope today that you can be interruptible for those things that God would have you to do and that it might help me and you break down some of our, our 
inevitable self-importance. Love you all. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.